Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. So we'll go ahead and begin then. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So Lord, as we look on these pastoral epistles and the book of Hebrews, uh, we ask you to be able to help us to be able to really understand uh, their content, but more importantly, to understand the message and what it means for us today. As we do this overview, help us to be able to take that next step and to be able to apply it. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so today... uh, we're going to see how far we get. I noticed in the bulletin, I kind of had a bit of a, a track that I wrote down just to keep it in my own head how I can finish by the end of the year and, uh, or by the end of the summer. And uh, Liz, I think, took that and put it in there. So we may actually cover more than what's listed. We might cover less. just depends on how it goes. But what we're looking at is beginning with 1 and 2 Timothy and looking at Titus and maybe doing those three somewhat together because they're both uh, very similar. One and two, Timothy and Titus, are what they call the pastoral epistles. They call them the pastoral epistles because it has to do with the pastoral leadership and also the encouragement of people to remain true to the faith and persevere in it. And so there are a lot of uh, moral as well as pastoral and... uh, I'm trying to edify the church to persevere in their faith. Um, Traditionally, 1 Timothy and Titus, um, both of those names come from the New Testament, from Acts chapter 16 and from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It even lists them as loyal followers of St. Paul. And so if you look at uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, those names themselves actually do have a historical presence with St. Paul. And so it would be natural that if St. Paul were writing uh, epistles trying to encourage Timothy and Titus, they would be people that St. Paul knew. I say traditionally because there is some debate on whether or not 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus were actually written by St. Paul, uh, mostly because of historical reasons. Because it seems, it seems that the style of writing and what they're addressing tends to be somewhat later Although it is entirely possible that St. Paul did write these epistles, it's also possible that uh, St. Paul wrote the epistles with the help of a secretary who was taking some liberties or had a little more uh, liberty in, in the way he was writing. And then it's also possible that it was someone who was a disciple of St. Paul who, in order to write in the spirit of St. Paul, used St. Paul's name and a couple of the well-known loyal followers. And all three of these options actually would be um, very much accepted as the norm in that day and age. So now in in our day and age, we don't tend to ghostwrite in the name of someone else. Um, But back then it was considered normal. So traditionally, Timothy and Titus were loyal followers of St. Paul. And then in um, 1 Timothy and Titus, um, that would have been um, written in... Macedonia, and and, uh, 2 Timothy was written in Rome. So I say traditionally. 
Um, in 2 Timothy, Paul is presented as a prisoner in Rome before his martyrdom in 67 AD. So if you're going to take the, uh, the traditional approach, you would say that these were written before um, his martyrdom in 67 AD, and then 1 Timothy and Titus were written even before then. Okay, so 1 Timothy and Titus written in Macedonia, and 2 Timothy written in Rome. Um, there, that one of the differences in these letters than his prior letters, in St. Paul's prior letters, he actually describes a lot when it comes to theology, talking about the significance of Jesus as Savior, um, explaining the contrast between the law and the new law of Christ, and, and really reflecting on that and elaborating on that. Here, in these letters, there isn't really a whole lot of theological explanations like existed in the earlier letters. Uh, Paul doesn't argue against false teaching in these letters. He just, he just uh, basically condemns it. So like in the prior letters, he goes to great lengths to show why this is false teaching, and this is why you need to um, get yourself back into the right thinking. Now, granted, there are those moments, like in Galatians, for example, when he says, you stupid Galatians, you know, where he, he kind of goes off on them and, and condemns the way that they're going. But at the same time, he usually explains why their way is lost. And so in these letters, he tends to just condemn it. And so that's one difference. Um, also, it, it seems that Paul is, is being a little more lax in his style. Some of the words that are used in, in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus aren't used at all in the earlier books. And there's a different vocabulary and a different writing style. And that's why people who are into the uh, literary genre of, of form criticism and all that, they'll look at these letters and they'll say, well, the, 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 the style of writing doesn't really match St. Paul either, even though there are similarities. So therefore, um, there's some question on whether St. Paul wrote it. And so um, those are two areas. Another one happens to be the history itself. The, the form of the theology for the development of what he's talking about seems to be something that is somewhat later in church history than the time like between 63 and 67 AD. And so for all those reasons, it seems that it is possible at least that someone other than St. Paul could have written these letters. Of course, it's also possible, as I mentioned, that, well, maybe Paul just gave a little more latitude to his secretary when he was talking. Um, perhaps St. Paul actually is writing at the end of his life, and so he's kind of gained a few vocabulary words that he didn't have before. Um, perhaps St. Paul is not willing, to, not willing to get into the argument again and explain himself because he's done it a million times and he's sick of talking about it. I mean, I don't blame him. I'd probably be in the same boat. So anyway, there, there are good reasons really why you can say that it, it may or may not be written by St. Paul, but I, I do have to say that the majority of present-day scholars will tend to lean to the side of saying that it really wasn't written by St. Paul. You know, so if you want to know where most people stand today, most people will say that. But there still is a good camp that says it really was written by St. Paul, and for those reasons that I mentioned, it's still very reasonable to assume that St. Paul wrote those letters. I tend to think of it somewhere in the middle, where St. Paul actually was the person behind the letters, and maybe there were fragments, maybe there were parts of these letters that needed to be combined somehow. And so when they combined them, of course, uh, the person who combined them was writing in the name of St. Paul, and it would have worked out either way. In a sense, it doesn't matter. It's still canonical scripture, but, you know, these are the sort of things that uh, people who get into the different types of uh, literary criticisms um, 
they're, they're trying to find the answers and by, by identifying the author and the time and the place, it, it helps to be able to uh, reveal the theology behind the letter a little better and uh, some of the circumstances and the culture and the settings and all that. So it is useful. So it's not just mere speculation. Okay, so anyway, here, here are a couple of the things. Okay, so why would a follower of St. Paul write this letter? Well, first of all, it would give credibility to applying Pauline thought to what he was trying to say. The other is, is that this is the time when the church is starting to organize itself a little more. In the beginning, it was just preaching the gospel and trying to, trying to plant the seeds. Well, over a few decades, as this would have been, now the church is at a place where it's trying to solidify itself and, and organize itself. And that idea of organizing would be something that if, if I'm trying to add credibility to the way the organization is, is starting to form, then I'm going to want to have an authority figure behind it, such as St. Paul, who actually did um, begin a lot of these different churches in these areas. And part of that formation process is, okay, well, now, now the, uh, the church is getting established. We need to have some full-time um, ministers here who are overseeing the church. And so those full-time ministers overseeing the church, we would call them priests or bishops, uh, sometimes deacons, those words are actually being used here in these pastoral epistles. And uh, it's not quite developed to the point of, for example, in the early 100s, there was a saint called St. Ignatius of Antioch, and he was one who died a martyr. But he was also one who explained the different... um, like the different offices of priest and bishop, and he was talking about um, this this succession of Saint Peter um, going back, you know, and or going forward until his present day bishop in Rome, and you know, so this is something that was very much formalized by the time of his death at 107 A.D. And so, so when you're looking at the development of the early church, it, it's not exactly accurate to say that you know Jesus rose from the dead and said, "Okay, disciples, you're now bishops." And then from this point on, you're going to ordain more bishops beyond you, and you'll have the priests and the deacons working with you. It took a little bit of time for that to develop. Granted, the disciples were bishops, but they didn't function like present-day bishops to the same degree. It was just beginning. Um, That shouldn't make you uncomfortable, because the way things tend to work is it it takes a little while for Jesus' plan to be developed, and it doesn't change what Jesus planned. doesn't change what he was doing. It just is, it's just the steps that naturally would have to take place. For example, you don't just throw a bishop in the middle of nowhere and say, okay, you're a bishop. You have to form the church first. So St. Paul would go in, he would evangelize. After the church would get evangelized, he would bring in some people and say, okay, Timothy and Titus, you go and watch over this church. You will watch over this church. I'll be back in a few weeks and we'll preach a little more. Um, St. Paul would have been the one who would have done the presidential prayers. He would have been... Uh, the priest over the Eucharist, and then um, over time, though, he would know that it couldn't just be him coming and going as a missionary. You'd have to send some permanent people in to oversee the church and to establish it. At that point, priests and bishops begin to develop as people who are overseeing entire churches connected with cities. Make sense? And so this is just the natural progress and process of the way things happen. And it took, as I mentioned, just a few years. So by the time of St. Ignatius of Antioch, which is around 100 A.D., he is writing 
a description of the church where there's very clear bishops and priests and deacons in a, an ecclesiastical structure, a hierarchy, and it's very formed. So at the time of these pastoral epistles, which were written somewhere in the mid-60s, um, then at this time also, it seems that these positions are pretty well formed, but they're not quite as solidified as they would be, you know, 30 years down the road. And then if you take the time of St. Paul's earliest writings, like First Thessalonians and, and some of those earlier books that are written in the 50s and 60s, you know, mid-50s and all, it's just getting to that point. So anyway, that, this is kind of part of the, uh, the process, so... But it's, it's somewhat interesting because these later, these later epistles, you can very clearly see the words you know, being used like bishops and priests and deacons. Okay. Is that clear or am I just kind of... Okay. I know what I'm trying to say. Okay, so you have the organization and the governing of the church in Paul's name. And actually, um, we see that in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Um, we also have pastoral advice. Let's see if I can... Let me go to Titus real quick, just because. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you might set right what remains to be done and appoint presbyters in every town, as I directed you. Okay, so this is St. Paul writing to Titus, saying you need to appoint presbyters in each town, as I I told you to do that. Presbyters, by the way, is the Greek word for priest. You know, so if you're wondering where that word comes in, like you may have heard of the Presbyterian Church. Some of you might have. Anyway, that's where the word comes from. So anyway, this was, uh, as I mentioned, written by St. Paul or someone in St. Paul's name who's trying to give some sort of credibility to the structure and the governing of the church at that time. Also, there's pastoral advice, so here's an example of that. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. So this is, this is just like, uh, um, well, pastoral advice, but do not rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with com- complete purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. Okay, so it's just giving practical pastoral advice how we're supposed to be living out the faith in the way that we treat one another. And so that also is the, you know, one of the reasons why they call it the pastoral epistles. So it has to do with the governing of the church, the establishing of the church, the hierarchy of the church, and also how the churches should be functioning on a moral level. Okay. Um, now, of course, like anything, anytime you have some sort of formation going on, you also have threats, Right. And the threats would be what they're talking about as, um, you know, false religions and false teachings. And so there's warnings and rejections of false teaching. Um, there tends to be a few things that are singled out. One is a, a Jewish legalism. Once again, it seems St. Paul especially was, was uh, dealing with that for quite a while in his uh, early writings. And it seems to continue. It's just... As I mentioned, he's not elaborating on it so much as just um, rejecting it and uh, condemning it. There are also some disputes when it comes to the use of the law. When I say the law, think of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, and how that should be properly used in the church. You know, it seems like that was still being settled. And also you have the, the false teaching that, that was beginning to 
conform with what would later become Gnosticism. So what Gnosticism is, is it was a type of religion that says there's a secret um, knowledge that if you're in on that secret knowledge, then you can obtain salvation by possessing, possessing that knowledge. It was very popular, especially in Hellenistic areas like Alexandria, and it tended to be something that we can see hints of that sort of thing, not the religion itself, but um, the rejection of it and um, some of the imagery in the Gospels of John, for ex- in the Gospel of John, for example. So Gnostics, they tend to be very black and white about things. So they'll say there's, you know, there's black, there's white, there's light, there's darkness, there's um, evil, there's good, and you know, it's it's kind of this idea of, of a dualistic um, type of approach. Um, added to that is the secret knowledge that if you're part of the in-group and the secret knowledge, you have the secret wisdom that no one else has. And that secret wisdom that we offer through our Gnosticism is something that has salvation. And uh, it's something that might seem a little um, foreign to us, but the closest equivalency that we have today would be some of the New Age teaching. You know, the idea of this, you know, the light and, you know, trying to draw into the energy and, and the idea of this you know, contrast of things in this dualistic type of, uh, um, um, I don't know, understanding of the way that the world works. And Gnosticism was definitely into that too. So anyway, there's some, um, some sort of rejection of the early forms of that kind of Gnosticism. And then there's also a, uh, just a warning of false teachers in general. Uh, part of it is too that there were people who were getting caught up in things like genealogies and um, different types of uh, the use of, of the law, or think about the first five books of the Bible, and they were getting caught up in trying to find like secret clues in it, you know, and hints and that sort of thing. Uh, to a degree, people do that even today. You know, they're kind of looking for the magic in the Bible, you know, rather than the message. But, you know, it's like if you take every fifth word and you divide it by three and put the square of six in it, you know, you'll find that Jesus actually, you know, you know what I mean? It's like people can do that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, once again, that, that ties into that Gnostic type of mentality, that there's secret things that are hidden, that if I find it, I've got the upper hand, you know. But anyway, so St. Paul, um, a few times in here, is saying, you know, you know, forget that endless speculation. It's worthless. It doesn't do anything. Actually, it draws people away from God if it's, if it's you know, something that, you know, tends to uh, be ungodly. And so anyway, there's some warnings about that. Let's see, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 I am writing you, well, I'll start at 14. I am writing you about these matters, although I hope to visit you soon. But if, it, if I should be delayed, you should know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Undeniably great is the mystery of devotion. And he goes on. Well, here, this is, actually, I read the wrong thing, but that's still important because here what, what uh, he's saying is, you know, where... The pillar and foundation of truth is is found in the church, and so if you want to be a part of that, you should just be naturally a part of the church, which is very public. And let's get back to the one that I was looking at, though. That was... No, that was right. Yeah, that was the law disputes, legalism. Never mind. Okay, we'll move on from here. Okay, so looking at First Timothy... Okay, you'll see some of these major themes um, coming through. So 
I'm just going to hit some highlights along the way. These letters are so short that you can read them literally like in about like 15 or 20 minutes. And if you spend a, if you spend a good time like concentrating on it and reading it very carefully, you could still read them pretty easily in a short amount of time. So first of all, it was written to Timothy, a true child, my son. Okay, so this is St. Paul talking in his fatherly language. Um, there is something that, that I should mention because I'm a priest, and that is there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with talking about spiritual fatherhood. You know, it's very normal in the scriptures. You see it all the time. St. Paul uses it repeatedly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he also says that I fathered you. You know, it's just part of this idea is that to father or to be a spiritual father is one who, you know, doesn't lord over someone. And it's not that he's manipulating over them or he's controlling them, but rather he takes a special familial uh, relationship with someone, even though he's not biologically related. In spirit, they are related and so he is being like a spiritual father. And so St. Paul is just simply using that. And uh, if, you, if you notice this coming up, it actually does come up quite a, quite a few times. Sometimes people are opposed to um, using the word father because they remember Jesus in Matthew saying, call no one on earth your father. But Jesus was saying that with a whole different set of circumstances and reasons, which if you want to go back and listen to Matthew, it'll explain it a little bit. So anyway... He's talking about it in a pastoral sense, though, right? Because he's, he's referring to himself as a spiritual father who's helping um, Timothy and informing him in his faith. And now he, now that he is formed, is, has to do the same thing. So he will now become the, the pastoral force in his own church. Okay, number, um, well, soon after that. Very soon. Warning against false doctrines. So from chapter um, 1, verse 3 on, he starts talking about some of these false doctrines, um, which, first of all, use the law correctly. He's saying don't use it for speculation or magic. It's not a matter of trying to use the law to gain some sort of insight that, that it wasn't intended to be in the first place. So he's saying use the law correctly because it seems that this was one of the things that St. Paul was continually battling even from the beginning. The idea that the, uh, the law somehow is, is over the gospel is not true. You know, that the, the law is fulfilled in Jesus, so therefore that has precedence. And then also one thing that I think was kind of nice is that St. Paul calls himself the uh, greatest sinner. You know, we often think we're the greatest sinners. So here St. Paul says, of them I am the greatest, you know, which is great. But his whole point is, is that Jesus came to save sinners, you know, that that... Um, somehow people don't like saying that they're a sinner. You know, I just think it's reality. We're all sinners, you know, and to be um, real about it is to say that. But St. Paul is just saying that Jesus came for sinners, and of them I am the greatest. So St. Paul doesn't speak as if he somehow is something different than the masses, but at the same time he does uh, speak in a way that that kind of gets the point across that, you know, yes, you're all sinners, just deal with it. I'm a sinner too, and I'm bigger than you, you know. So, so I think it kind of puts them at ease a little bit and actually should put us at ease. We always think we're the biggest sinners. No, nope, St. Paul is. We can just kind of take that one. Um, they also say that we should be praying for leaders, which this is an interesting point. It's something very different with Christianity is because um, Jesus talks about praying for those in authority, 
Uh, St. Paul also talks about praying for those in authority and those who are in leadership position. And one of the reasons for that is because they need salvation too, obviously. Just because someone is a, a Roman or a, or a king or an emperor or a, um, a leader civilly doesn't mean that they don't you know, need to be saved. They do, and so we should be praying for all people, including our leaders. But I think another reason why this is important is because it's very easy uh, to draw a caricature of someone and therefore dehumanize them as if they somehow are not truly human. Now, if you think about the way politics work, you know, we do that. You know, we, we take uh, the, whoever the president is, Bush or Obama, you know, people will, will take them and try to make them less than human, exaggerate um, certain points about them so that we can condemn them and villainize them and not have to pray for them. So anyway, just something to think about. I think it's kind of accurate. We tend to do that with politicians. We also do it with, uh, like, movie stars and famous people in general. But St. Paul, I think, is, is being very blunt. You'll notice I say St. Paul when I'm talking about these because, you know, I personally believe that he either wrote them or, or very much influenced the writing. So, you know, why, why say the author of, you know? So anyway... You can think of it any way you want, but I'm just referring to the person who wrote the book. Then there, there is some discussion about women, and sometimes in these pastoral epistles, it seems that women kind of get dogged a little bit. You notice that? You know when they say women don't speak in public? Okay, so first of all, we should understand that there is a cultural context that we may or may not know about. In the time, it was different. We do know that. Culturally speaking, the, the role of women was different back then than it is now. Um, but also, it seems that the discussion here is, has to do with the liturgy. And we don't know what was going on in the church there. But you can imagine how it would be is, if, for example, we're um, just kind of trying to have mass and, and people in the congregation are just randomly getting up and, you know, praise Jesus, you know, and, and then preaching on their own and doing, you know, the disruptive thing. Well, the order of the Mass and the formula of the Mass wasn't um, as, as um, constructed as it is now. It was a little more free-flowing. All the essential elements were there. They still had the Liturgy of the Word. They had the Prayers of the Faithful. They had the Eucharist. Uh, they had presidential prayers, the consecration. They had all that stuff, but it wasn't like it was written down in a book and everyone followed it to the letter. You know, so things were a little more free-flowing. So what St. Paul was trying to do to a large degree is, is draw order into the arrangement of the worship, as well as, you know, have some sort of governance by the, by the different bishops and priests who are being assigned to these particular churches. It's kind of common sense. Um, also, there are some, um, this one thing that, they, for example, they're talking about women being saved through um, giving childbirth, which is, you know, of course, we, we're thinking in this puritanical type sense, and uh, um, really the culture then was very different, and, and granted, it, it was a, you know, it was kind of like a mill-dominated culture back then too. But at this point, there were there was a very strong emphasis on, on the idea of you know you should get married, you know people were saying that you know, people shouldn't get married, and Saint Paul was saying no, people should get married because you know having children is a very good thing. We you know we need to kind of keep things going here, and so that was one of the. One of the contradictions there were the people that are saying, you know, now nah, we, you know, women 
can never be saved. And not only that, but women, you know, they shouldn't be getting married. And and, and St. Paul actually, in a, in a kind of a backhanded way, it seems here, is saying that, you know, well, re- people should really be getting married, and it's actually a good thing if women are giving birth to children. You know, so it's it's not all as bad as it sounds. But I think the other thing is, we don't know the context. What was he dealing with in the particular church that he, he said this? Because there are other places, remember, in Scripture where he specifically talks about women having a function and a role in the liturgy and where women are supposed to teach and edify. And actually, even if you look at the uh, beginning when they're talking about um, the, the moms of Timothy and Titus, let's see, what was that? got some beautiful names in there, I think, if I remember right. That might be toward the end. It is. It's toward the end. I'll get to it eventually. But he has, he's, he's, he's taking the, the mothers of, of Titus, or Timothy, <coughs> and, and, you know, talking about how great it was that they formed him in the faith. So obviously women are supposed to be the teachers, and they're supposed to, um, you know, have an active role. So anyway, um, then there's the discussion of leaders need to be temperate and consistent. Once again, this is common sense type of stuff. You don't take someone who is kind of up and down and moody and on fire one day and, you know, crash and burn the next and say, okay, now we want you to take over the church. You know, you want someone to be kind of even keeled, someone who's got some life experience and can handle it. And uh, if that's not the case, then typically you want to form them. That's why we have these things called seminaries that take, you know, a little bit of time. So, so even though, even though it might seem that, you know, it's kind of crazy to go six more years in seminary after six years of college, it, it's somewhat good because when you first start seminary, you might be overly idealistic and, you know, you kind of need to kind of get a grasp of things a little, a little more and as age and wisdom does to all of us. So anyway, he's talking about that. But not only that, morally temperate, um, which, which means that um, morally you don't want to put someone who's got, like, huge issues and then just kind of turn them loose. You know, you want someone who's, who's even killed enough to be able to handle that. Um, in 1 Timothy, which I just read a little while ago, he, he mentions that the church is the, is the pillar and foundation of truth. Of course, we would say, well, no, wait, Jesus is the pillar and foundation of truth, right? It's like, well, yeah, Jesus is, but what, how does Jesus reveal, you know, truth? He reveals it, you know, through the church. He, he revealed it to the disciples and said, you know, on you I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it's the church that was formed first. Um, the other aspects of, of what is contained within that church would be the apostolic teaching. It would be the Eucharist. It would be the sacraments. It would be the Bible. All those things are, are part of the church, not separate from the church. Does that make sense? Like, where did the Bible come from? The Bible came, you know, through the church. It came from people who were involved in the church, people who were practicing in the church. It came from the faith of the church. And it was also the Holy Spirit working through these people. And, you know, these are the books that would become the Bible in the New Testament. Sometimes I think we have a false sense that the Bible kind of fell out of the sky, and here it is, and now we have it. You know, like God himself just dumped it, you know, in, in wholesale piles all over the place, and everyone just kind of picks up their Bible and goes on their way. 
Um, it really was part of a church experience. It was formed in the same place that the faith and the liturgy and, and the apostolic preaching took place. So if you want to know the context of the Bible, you should know the context also of the faith of the church in which it came from. Right, this is somewhat important. I was in a conversation, and I, I think I've mentioned this probably too much already, but uh, I was discussing the divinity of Jesus with some Jehovah's Witnesses, and I said, what if I can show you that the disciples themselves believed in the divinity of Jesus? You know, would that be enough for you? And they said, no, because God wrote the Bible, not the disciples, and therefore, since God wrote the Bible, even if the disciples thought Jesus was divine, the Bible says he still isn't. And I'm like, well, I can show that the early church all believed that he was divine. No, but the early church has no connection with the Bible. So anyway, you can see where this would be an issue, right? If you strictly separate things like the Bible from the church, then you're going to have issues. If you look at the church as being the pillar and foundation of truth, and then from that the Bible comes from, it makes sense. There's a natural flow and progression to that. Jesus you know, gives the disciples the apostolic uh, preaching. The disciples um, have that apostolic tradition of preaching, and then eventually these, the, this faith gets written down. You know, there's a logical progression. Okay, so chapter 4. I actually read this at Mass last week, even though it wasn't part of the readings, because it has this, this idea of, of the false um, religion, the false type of teaching that, that uh, St. Paul was combating at this time. And he was saying, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in these last times some will turn away from the faith, by paying attention to deceitful spirits and demonic instructions through the hypocrisy of liars and branded consciousnesses. They f- forbid marriage. Okay, remember the women in the marriage thing? They forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected when received with thanksgiving. So, once again, this is just the idea of of rejecting that immorality or in the false teaching. Um, also, there are those practices of respecting elders and widows and, and how to reprimand people properly, all right, which I wish we would be better at that as a church personally because what we tend to do is as soon as someone has any kind of uh, um, offense, all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're all gossiping to everyone else about how terrible the church did this or the church did that or this person did this and that person did that and you know, it turns into a huge issue, and if, if it would have just been done properly like the scripture says here, then, you know, that would be very helpful. Let's see if I can find that. I'm, I'm in a bit of a, you know, so I'm kind of flipping back and forth a little bit because I had it all set up with the Bible that I left at home. So now I just grab this one, and I'm like, oh, it's like not here anymore. So, so anyway... Do not accept an accusation against a presbyter unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Reprimand publicly those who do sin so that they will rest. Okay. Reprimand publicly those who do sin so that the rest also will be afraid. I charge you before God in Christ and the elect to keep these rules without prejudice and do nothing out of favoritism. Do not lay hands too readily on anyone and do not share in another's sins. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water, but have a little wine for the sake of your stomach. They use this one on St. Francis. 
You know, saying, look, it even says, have a little wine, Francis. So, but some people's sins are public, preceding them to judgment, but other people are followed by their sins. Similarly, good works are also public, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. You know, so the idea here is, you know, to kind of be prudent about how we reprimand, but at the same time, you know, do what we can not to be notorious. All right, so let's get into Second Timothy a little bit. So he talks about first fan into flame God's gift. Okay, so what do you think that gift would be that he's talking about here? Well, so this is Timothy, right? He was, he was, they laid hands on him. Uh, the Holy Spirit called down the Spirit to be upon him. And so, so that fan into flame God's gift is the, the gift of, you know, the Holy Spirit you know, that allow that to take effect. We in our baptism, we in our confirmation, we've had those gifts of the Spirit, and we should be fanning those gifts into flame. Um, in other words, they're there, but we don't want them to be dormant. So St. Paul's just saying, fan those gifts into flame because you're going to need them. You know, you're, you're in a, a leadership position, and there are some things that have to happen here. Also, here's, here's what I was talking about with the uh, education of Timothy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and how I am confident lives also in you. Eunice, that's kind of a fun name. Are there any Eunices anymore? Every once in a while, Eunice pops up, but not, not as much as there probably used to be. So anyway, the, the idea of this family education was, was important and actually made a difference in the life of uh, Timothy, and St. Paul is recognizing that. Um, St. Paul also says that we should never be afraid of or ashamed of witnessing the truth, you know, the gospel. And he also mentions that you shouldn't be ashamed of my imprisonment. Because I guess there must have been people that were saying, oh, St. Paul, we're, you know, he's, he's arrested, and so they were ashamed of him, or um, they were scared to admit that, and, and Paul was just saying, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed of this, you know, that, that this is, you know, for God's glory. He uses a, a few little parables in here. One is a, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And all of it really has to do with the idea of what they do to persevere in their faith. So let's see if I have that. Oh, did you? So what names you found? Hermogenes and Regius. Well, those are the people that let him down. Yeah, it's part of the suffering. You know everyone in Asia deserted me, including uh, Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord give mercy to the family of Onesiphorus. I said that right? (laughs) Okay, all right, anyway. (laughs) anyway I don't know so (laughs) well it's Greek so Onesiphorus 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 
That'd be a good baby name. Okay, so call him, yeah, one. Okay, so St. Paul uses a couple quick parables to show that um, just like an athlete or a farmer that we have to persevere in our faith. And he does mention specifically this idea of godless philosophical discussion that leads further from God because it can cause speculation and pride. And there's nothing wrong with speculation or questioning or trying to find deeper meanings and messages and all this sort of thing. But, the, but what can happen is that people get caught up in that and they totally abandon the important stuff. So, for example, if, if I'm only reading the Bible because I'm looking for um, like some obscure hidden magic in it, then I'm kind of missing the point. Now, if I'm reading the Bible and I notice, it's like, wow, I didn't realize that this is as intricate as it is. Like, look, look at the, the structure of the Gospel of John. Well, you know, that's, you know, some speculation and stuff like that. It, it's not going to save me. But at the same time, it's, it, it's drawing me deeper into the heart of the, the message if I'm doing it correctly. But if I'm only concentrating on, you know, the obscure and, and that sort of thing, then that can be something that would lead me away from God because I'm going to be abandoning the true message and then chasing after, you know, the latest, uh, I don't know how to say that, the latest craze or whatever it would be. So anyway, he, he just warns against godless philosophical discussion that can lead further from God uh, through speculation and also sp- um, spiritual and intellectual pride. Um, the other thing that can happen is we can become intellectually prideful and anytime we're prideful, then that will lead us away from God. So anyway, just another one. We've got the uh, attitude of irreligion. That's the one that I was speaking of that I actually read at the homily last week because it was a pretty good description. So 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about the dangers of the last days. So whenever you hear the words last days, what it's referring to is there will be some kind of persecution and there will be um, the ways of God are going to be challenged very, um, very much and, and very aggressively by the evil one. And so when they talk about these last days and they talk about, you know, the calamities and this sort of thing, they're, they're talking about that, that tension that's forming before Jesus finally comes back and restores all thing in himself. So it's like, it's like the uh, bottled up... Um, um, tension that, that just becomes very aggressive in the last days until Jesus finally comes. Does that make sense? So, so here he's just talking about some of the things that we should notice in those last days. And he's talking about people will become self-centered and lovers of money, proud, haughty, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, irreligious, callous. Anyway, he just gives a big long list, and it's basically a big long list of irreligion or anti-religion and you know, it, it was around at the time of St. Paul. It's around today. Uh, sometimes we think that it's just, you know, only in today's world. That's not really the case. And, and the point of this all is be resolute in your faith. Persevere in your faith. Uh, he's just saying it over and over in a million different ways. But you're going to be persecuted, so um, just, just persevere through that. Um, you're going to have people that are, that are going to want to take you in one direction or the other. But be consistent in the faith. Avoid those false teachers. You're going to have a temptation maybe to get on a tangent here and there. So avoid those tangents. 
persevere in the faith and remain true and steadfast in the faith, which is, you know, the faith of the of Jesus through the apostles and in the church. So anyway, just to give a quick summary there. All right, so Titus, we do have the uh, description of early church governance, and there's a description of of these um, elders or the leaders, and you have diakonoi, presbyteros, episkopoi. Those are three Greek words. Um, diakonoi, that would be what we call deacons. Presbyteros would be what we call priests. Episcopoi would be what we call um, bishops. And actually, in various languages, they just have a, a, a strict translation, or a, like in Spanish, for example, diaconos, presbyteros, y episcopos. You know, we, we say in Spanish, for example, those three words that line up very closely to the Greek. In English, we have different words because of our, you know, language history. But that's where deacons, priests, and bishops come from originally. I mean, language-wise. Now, deacons were more the servers, the, uh, the ones who were about um, doing works and service. The, the presbyteros, or the priests, were the ones who were involved when it comes to the liturgy and different things like that. The bishops were the ones who, there was usually one bishop in each um, reasonably large town. And eventually, of course, it would develop into that, like, very uh, concretely. But there would be one bishop in each church and eventually each town. So the bishop was the chief overseer of the whole group, and the priests would work with the bishop, and the deacons would help the priests and the bishops. So it's somewhat similar to what we have now. even. But anyway, he even mentions it there in Titus. Um, once again, a description of what the elders should be. They should be solid in teaching and tradition. They should be morally upright, you know, kind of similar along the lines of the First uh, and Second Timothy. They should lead by example and behavior, and uh, and be moderate. There's uh, also there's a section in here too. That talks about the great God and Savior Jesus. See now in the there is a bit of a um, development that happened in theology when it came to Jesus, and he was always accepted as divine, but they had a hard time explaining that. And in the very beginning, they didn't necessarily come out and say, Jesus is God. You know, they didn't typically say it in that way. They would talk about, you know, the Father, and then they would talk about the Son of Man or, the, you know, the Son of God. And, and they would talk about it where it would express his divinity, but they had a hard time expressing Jesus as God just so directly because um, it, was, it was just hard for the, the Jewish population especially to understand how there could be one God and then how does that work if Jesus is divine and the Father is God? Because if you say God, doesn't that just refer to the Father? And so it took a little while for the people to accept the idea that, um, well, when you say God, you can apply the word God to Jesus as well as the Spirit and as well as to the Father, not just to the Father. Does that make sense? So even though they knew the divinity of Jesus, they didn't always specifically um, be so blunt about it. Unlike toward the end, where people became more and more comfortable just saying it like Jesus is God. You know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. You know, I mean, it's just very blunt toward later. But that was the development of language more than even the development of theology. Does that make sense? Am I expressing that correctly? Okay. Just so I don't say something that sounds funny. Well, anyway, once again, he's saying the same thing. 
um, oppose false teaching, lead by example, be obedient to civil authority, and then also that we are supposed to be people who are kind and peaceful people. But he does have a little bit of an explanation in there saying that the reason why we're kind and peaceful people is because the Spirit helps us to do that. So it's not merely our own efforts. It's not like we're going to pull ourselves up with our own bootstraps and do it all ourselves. It's rather we're going to allow the Spirit to do it through us, uh, which once again pulls us into the, um, the proper kind of spirituality where we're connected in, in Christ through the Spirit, and that allows us to flow with the way that we live out our faith. Okay, so we're going to go to... Those are the pastoral epistles. Do you feel very pastoral now? I hope so. Because now we're going to go to the shortest, well, letter of St. Paul at least. Remember when I told you why the books were arranged the way that they were? Like St. Paul's letters, it goes by length. So that's why Romans is the longest, so that's the first. So Philemon is the shortest, and so he goes last. And so I say he because this was actually written to a particular person. Philemon was the, um, he was a landlord who owned some slaves, and there was a slave called Unisimus. Unisimus. That's another, that's the same guy, isn't it? Unisimus. So anyway, he ran away. So Unisimus ran away, and he also stole something. And so he was hanging out with St. Paul, and he was very useful. And because of that, St. Paul is, well, a little play on the word, Onesimus means useful, but anyway, so he actually was, though, to St. Paul. So St. Paul decides after a while, he's like, I really like you, Onesimus, but um, you're really useful and all, but it's not right the way that you ran away and stole something, because um, St. Paul also knew Philemon, who he evangelized before, and was a spiritual father to him. So therefore... He sends back Onesimus to Philemon, and he writes a letter saying, basically, I'm sending him back to you, and I'm sending him back to, to you so you can do the right thing. What I want you to do is to, to set him free again, but to do it on your terms, out of your gift. And I realize that you have the free will to keep him or not keep him, but I'm hoping that you will just, out of the goodness of your heart, give him back to me because he is useful to me, and he's proven himself so. Now keep in mind, Philemon, that I could demand him, and you would owe me, but I'm not going to do that. Sounds almost like he's laying a little guilt on, you know. But, uh, but anyway, it was, it was something that Paul sends him back so that Philemon can freely give him back to Paul. Philemon. There are two ways to pronounce that, and it messes me up because I keep trying to pronounce it in Greek, and I know in English they, they say like, Philemon, isn't it? Yeah. And I keep trying to pronounce it, yeah, anyway. Between the Spanish and the Greek and the English. That's the one word in the Bible I've probably said a million times and I still can't say it right. Kind of like Cephas and Kephas. Like, like Peter. Anyway, don't worry about it. So, but he, what he says though is, I could demand it back, but you know what? I won't do that. But anyway, he says, I'm sending... Onesimus back, but I hope your charity sends him back to me. Also, this is somewhat of an important letter because this was the beginning of the end of slavery. So the, the, the framework was, 
was being laid. Slavery was a, a very accepted institution at the time of Jesus. It was something that was um, just normal. And actually, slaves, uh, because the world was so, so destitute and poor in general, slaves actually were not as bad as we would think because there was a class below the slave, and the class below the slave was actually the day laborer who didn't know if he was going to make enough money to be able to feed his family. At least slaves could eke out you know, enough to be able to feed their families. So, so there actually was a class that was sometimes even below the slaves. Um, but as economies improved, then you have the ideas, is it ever okay to enslave a person? And, you know, this was actually one of the starting points for the Jesuits when they were the ones who formulated the ideas that, you know, no, it's actually not okay to be a slave. And that was going to be the beginning of the abolition movement in Europe. Anyway, a little history that goes with that, too. Okay, Book of Hebrews. I think we can do it. Five minutes? Okay, you want to put it off till next week? I can't do it in five minutes. I could do it maybe in 20. <laughs> All right, so we'll put it off for next week. Because Hebrews is actually too important to power through. It is. Okay, so we'll stop there. All right, thank you all. Any questions before we go? These, these actual letters that we just did, they're a little different than some of the other stuff that we we're going through because you don't need a huge amount of background to understand them. If you just kind of read through them, it's pretty much, okay, I can kind of understand it. But having a little bit of the idea that, okay, the church is beginning to form and that's why it's written gives a little bit of a background because then it, it makes sense why St. Paul is specifically saying, you know, we need to formulate the churches and we need to govern them with these sorts of standards. And, you know, if you look at it in that respect, it it really does make sense that it's written the way that it is. All right. Okay, so next week, Hebrews. Actually, read read Hebrews before next week. So so that, because it should make sense to you, but there's actually quite a bit to fill in. And uh, if you read it, and then we do the Bible study on it, you'll have a really good understanding not only of that book, but the, the, the whole significance of Jesus in the Old Testament and how he is the high priest and what that means. All right, so see you all next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.